As we turn to the Word of God this morning, let's lift up our hearts as we ask the Holy Spirit to be our teacher, our counselor, the one who will illumine our hearts and our minds to understand, have a clear sense of His Word, and also its implications for our lives, both individually and corporately. Let's pray. Father, as we approach your word, may we do so with humility, understanding that none of us are capable of understanding its sense and knowing how it applies to us by ourselves, that we are in desperate need of your spirit, and you are a gracious, benevolent, generous God who promises to give us your spirit as a counselor, as a comforter, as a teacher, that your word will not return to you void, so that Father, as I simply try to be faithful and obedient, may I, as a listener as well as a speaker, hear your word. May we together, as your family, worship you. As the choir sang, I heard the voice of Jesus say, where do we hear the voice of Jesus? We hear it in your scriptures. We hear it in your word. So may we take heed to be on our guard and ask that you would illumine our minds and our hearts this day. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, worship is a participatory thing. We are told if you think about the call to worship, come let us sing for joy to the Lord. Come with a certain heart and attitude, thanksgiving and praise. Later in the psalm, if we had read all of that psalm, it would have told us to kneel before the Lord, our maker. So we're coming with celebration, shouts of noise, thanksgiving, kneeling, humility. And so it's appropriate. If you're able, and I don't put any pressure on you, if you can't stand, that's perfectly fine. Worship is never meant to be filled with pressure. But if you're able, this is the very word of God. And so we ask you to stand out of reverence because we are recognizing that he has, out of love, spoken to us and revealed himself to us in his word. And we want to hear that with eager hearts. Let's stand as we hear the word of God read. We're continuing our study in Mark chapter 13. And this morning we're in Mark 13, verses 1 through 13. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to, be where, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. But say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Friends, this is the very word of the Lord, given by the God of love, because he loves us. Please be seated. 
all leaders, and in a sense we're all leaders in one sense, because leaders are those who pour themselves out for others, who invest in others. And so it doesn't matter whether you're the leader of thousands or whether you're the leader of your family or whether you're leading a neighbor or whether you're leading just somebody involved in your life. All leaders need from time to time because we're so busy pouring out, investing in the lives of others, you need people to pour out and invest in your lives. So we need something in the workplace. It's called continuing education. Conferences, retreats, that kind of stuff. So for example, I personally am excited that Jamie and her women's leadership team are next month going to Atlanta for the leadership retreat. That is a very, very important time because it re-energizes them, refuels them, it bonds them together as a team, it gives them a shared vision and a shared purpose for loving and leading our women's ministry. I actually remember that I first surrendered my life to Christ at a retreat back in 1980 at Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. It was a weekend retreat held by Young Life. I don't remember all of the circumstances, but I do remember it was my first time being at Gettysburg, and I remember kind of having this sense, a little bit of awe, kind of looking out over the Gettysburg battlefield and remembering what had happened there in the past. And I remember having a very important conversation with one of my Young Life leaders, and he was challenging me to personally get off the fence and kind of, what am I doing with the gospel? What am I doing with the claims of Christ? I can't say I ever remember making a conscious decision, but one thing I do remember is that when I walked into my home, and it was late on a Sunday afternoon, and of course, I'm the oldest of three boys. My, my house was ra- rarely quiet. And so this time, I came home, 5 o'clock in the afternoon, something like that, nobody's home. And I'm like, this is strange. It's it was almost like walking into worship. It was that startling time today when everybody's quiet, and it kind of makes you come to attention a little bit. What's going on? And I can remember just standing in our living room and just going, I think I'm a Christian. No idea why. Don't remember a conscious decision, but I know something was different. No idea what it meant. I went looking for my parents. They happened to be across the street at a neighbor's house, and so here they are hanging out with neighbors, and I walked over, and Dad greets me, and Hi, Dad, how are you? And he's asking, how are you, son? Good, Dad, I think I'm a Christian. I think he thought I joined a cult or something. (laughs) What is that? We weren't exactly a church-going family at that particular time. All I know, I didn't know all the ramifications of belief. I certainly didn't know, I didn't make a decision, but I do know something inside of me had changed. I hadn't done anything, but God had done something. Because I now knew that God was real to me, that he did something for me. I didn't do anything for him, but he did something for me. He regenerated my heart, and I believed. I didn't decide to believe, but I believed. And I still had no idea what that meant. But I knew that everything had changed, and evidence that everything that had changed. This was two months before high school graduation. So the next day was Monday, and I go to school. And I remember I told someone... I had known since the fifth grade that I had become a Christian. And again, I'm kind of scratching my head going, what in the world are you doing? This was so out of the ordinary for me. But his name was Bill Kennedy. And I went, I said, Bill, I think I became a Christian this weekend. And he about leaped for joy and went nuts and said, Jeff, that's amazing. I've been praying for you since the fifth grade. To which I think I looked at him like he was from Mars. I was kind of like, what? 
The point is, God uses things like getaways, retreats, whether it's a conference, formal, informal, to change our lives, to prepare us, to re-energize us, to give us a renewed sense of vision, whether we are a women's ministry leader with our leadership team, or whether, like in Mark chapter 13, giving you the context, you've got Jesus with four of his key leaders, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Coming out of the temple, we'll go over it in just a second, question and observation is made, then Jesus on the Mount of Olives, this is what is commonly known as the Olivet Discourse, it's recorded in three of the four Gospels, what is known as the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus gives them private instruction. If you would, it's a leadership retreat, preparing them for what is about to take place. We could say that this is Jesus' final leadership retreat. It's almost like his farewell address before his impending passion, his death and resurrection. And as a matter of fact, it's the longest uninterrupted course of private instruction in the Gospel of Mark. One commentator put it this way, he says, what we have here is a bridge, a bridge between Jesus' public ministry culminating in the conflict with the temple authorities and the passion narrative, where the conflict with authority leads to Jesus' condemnation and death. And Mark, by locating this discourse in this crucial position and by recurring reference to the destruction of the temple, what Mark is doing is he's pointing to the relationship which exists between the judgment upon Jerusalem that's implied by the discourse and the death of Jesus. And to give you the big picture here, Mark's goal, his intention, his aim is to show Jesus giving a farewell address to his disciples preparing them for what is to come. He's equipping them, showing his love for them. He's being, like he says in John chapter 10, the good shepherd. He's about to lay down his life for his sheep, but now he's showing his pastoral concern for them, providing them with consolation as well as exhortation, practical instruction for them for what is to come. Four times in the discourse, And I only printed for us verses 1 through 13, but I'm going to refer to some different things throughout the discourse. Four times in this discourse, verses 5, verse 9, verse 23, and verse 33, Jesus tells them to be on their guard. See to it. Take heed. Be on your guard. Showing that the purpose of this, Jesus is not gathering. And this is really important. Because whenever you approach Scripture like this, we're talking about the end times here. That rich, deep theological word. Pastors love to preach on this always. Eschatology. I said during our Sunday school class when Rick was teaching on the authority of the word of God and how we do expository preaching, I said, I really prayed all week for a topical sermon that God would somehow change. And God said, no. He's giving me eschatology as what to preach. I think he was doing that to humble me a little bit. And one of the things that we have to recognize, Jesus is not gathering his disciples here because he wants it to be like a da Vinci code, trying to figure out great speculation along the lines of, come here, guys, I'm going I'm to give you some secret information. You're going to kind of know exactly what all the historical events are about. Instead, he is giving a leadership retreat 
in order to shape them in terms of the type of people he wants them to become. As one commentator put it, summing up the discourse as a whole, he says, the message here is we must live in light of his imminent coming and that the Bible brings up the second coming of Jesus Christ not to inspire us to a particular line of speculation, but rather to inspire us to a particular kind of life. When he says, be on your guard, take heed, watch out, and he repeats this at four distinctive times during this instruction, he's basically leading us to ask the right type of question. He's saying the question that we should not be asking is, what view of the end times do you hold? Are you pre-trib, post-mill, ah-mill, ah-trib, somewhat trib, no trib, whatever it all is. Or what we always used to like to joke around, we're pan-millennium. It'll pan out in the end. Jesus is not trying to give us speculative information. The question we should be asking is, what kind of person does this challenge me to be? And through Jesus' exhortation of his disciples, the Holy Spirit is teaching us to live in light of Jesus' imminent, triumphant return. And the text teaches us two things when we ask that question. How does Jesus' teaching here challenge us to live? And it basically tells us two things, to live a vigilant life and to live with a missional imperative. To live a vigilant life. Again, some context. We've said that Mark is writing his gospel from the eyewitness vantage point of Peter. That Peter and Mark were kind of friends. And Peter was Mark's main source for his narrative. Mark's information is largely based on Peter's teaching and preaching and accounts and was intended for the church at Rome. So in other words, we ask, what did this text mean and what did it mean for the original Christians living in Rome in the A.D. 60s? Well, the Christians in Rome in the A.D. 60s lived under a certain emperor. If you don't know his name, if you're not that familiar with world history, uh, perhaps you can be familiar with a man, his name was Nero. Nice guy, friendly guy, really friendly to Christians. Now, if you're listening on the internet, that was divine sarcasm right there. Okay, Nero didn't like Christians. There was things like a fire in the city. It's the Christians' fault. And he did things like intense persecution on them. And the church at Rome was probably at least vaguely familiar to events going on in Palestine leading up to the rebellion from AD 66 to AD 70 that led the Romans under the generalship of a man by the name of Titus destroying, squashing the rebellion, destroying the city of Jerusalem along with the temple. What Mark is doing is he's giving his original hearers, his readers, the church at Rome, he's showing them the same pastoral concern that Jesus had for his disciples. And the point is not some sort of apocalyptic fervor, but obedience, is, but obedience to Jesus' call to things like, if anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. And the call to evangelism or mission. And so as one commentator says, the witness of the eschatological community not only focuses on the suffering Son of Man, whose crucifixion and resurrection comprise the core of the gospel, but also looks forward to the triumphant Son of Man, 
whose appearance represents the one event in light of which the present is illumined. Mark is encouraging the church at Rome to face the present, their turmoil, their crisis, their uncertainty with realism and confidence and hope. Do we not need that message today? How do we live in light of Jesus' imminent return? See, I could spend this time, we could go over all the things that there is disagreement about. But the one thing that there is a lot of agreement about is Jesus' visible, personal return to consummate the kingdom and to bring the renewal of the whole world. As another writer put it, so while there's little disagreement that Jesus Christ will return visibly and personally at the end of time to judge and renew the whole world, there is little consensus on many of the details of what is to be made of the doctrine of the end times or eschatology. So I want to be very clear here. There's a lot of research, a lot of writing on passages like this, so many different opinions. I'm going to give you, everybody's got to hang their hat somewhere. Mine is on what could be called the amillennial position. It's the position I believe our confession takes. And so one of the things we have to recognize, so I owe here to an awful lot to commentators that I've chosen to hang my hat on. Let's recognize the context of what's going on. If you look down with me at verse 1, okay, pay attention. Verse 1 begins, and as he came out of the temple... Okay, and remember what was going on in the temple. He was being challenged by scribes and Pharisees, Herodians and Sadducees, challenging his wisdom, challenging his authority. He cleansed the temple. Now, as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as one historian said, the occasion for Jesus' discourse is his prediction that the temple will be destroyed. The temple was an impressive building. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that each stone was approximately 37 feet long and 12 feet high. So thus, when Jesus says not one stone will be standing upon another, he is predicting an extremely violent event and a tremendous disaster. We know that this prophecy came true. In 70 AD, the Roman army under Titus destroyed Jerusalem. He raised the temple to the ground as a lesson and warning to all rebels. It is against this background that we need to approach this entire passage and understand it as a whole and understand Jesus' purpose to not just give the disciples inside information, even though that might have been what they wanted, but to make them a certain kind of people, a vigilant community, able to bear witness to the reality of the kingdom in the midst of intense suffering. So thus, even though the disciples are probably asking Jesus when the end of the world would be, they're human like we would be, when the consummation of God's kingdom is, Jesus' answers, which probably need to be interpreted as relating to two things, both at times in the discourse to what one commentator called the mini-end of the world. That is, the actual destruction of Jerusalem and the temple that took place historically in A.D. 70. And at other times, to the actual end of the world, the judgment day, that he is going back and forth 
between these events at different times in the narrative. But all throughout, that's why I gave you the four points in the instruction, he is encouraging and exhorting them to be vigilant, to be on your guard, to take heed, to see to it. Instructions against false teachers, against false messiahs. Those that are thinking that some of the signs that were given, the wars, the rumors of wars, the earthquakes, the famines, are the actual end of the world when they are only the preliminary signs. And that what Jesus is doing here is he is forming a certain kind of people, a people on their guard, a people being vigilant to lead a certain kind of life in the midst of suffering and persecution. And the practical question is, why is he exhorting them to such vigilance? What is his overarching purpose? And that leads us to our next point, to live with a missional imperative. Do you realize that everything we have been talking about, and we've been talking about it now for several weeks, as we're looking at Mark chapter 11, 12, 13, as we move into chapters 14, that all of this is happening during Jesus' final week of life. I want you to notice something and think about something for a second. Have you ever noticed how much of the Gospels are concerned with Jesus' final week of life? Wouldn't make for a great biography, would it? What if one of you decided, you know what? I think God's calling me to be a writer. I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to write a biography of some famous person. So I'll do a little bit on his birth, give a, you know, a chapter or two on there. Pretty much skip over Everything else related. Oh, Luke puts one thing in there about age 12. But everybody else, they skip over. All. Don't you want to know what Jesus was like as a teenager? What he was like going through puberty? I mean, so we inquiring minds want to know some of these things. Gospel writers skip over that. Spend some time on the three years of his public ministry. And literally all this time, the bulk of the gospel is on the final week of Jesus' life. John spends almost the second half, the entire second half of his gospel, on the final week of his life. Maybe that's because they're not biographies proper, that they're aimed and intended for a different purpose. They're giving revelation and instruction about what Jesus came to do, give his life as a ransom for many. And so just to give you one place... John chapter 14, verse 12. John does not give us the Olivet Discourse, but these, both these things, the Olivet Discourse at the Mount of Olives, along with Jesus' Upper Room Discourse, occurred during Jesus' final week of life. And in one place in John's Gospel, part of his Upper Room Discourse, he said the following thing to his disciples. John chapter 14, verse 12. says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Now I have to admit, I'm a pastor, I've read this verse hundreds of times, confession to make. I don't know how you guys read this when you've read this, maybe it's coming up in your Bible reading plan and you're reading through this and stuff, but I think we all tend, if we're honest, we all have a tendency to kind of read this and say, oh yeah, Greater works than we, than we will do because Jesus is going to the Father. Uh-huh, sure, right. And then we think doctrinally and we go, well, okay, because he's going to the Father and he's sending his spirit and he was 
limited in his humanity, voluntarily limited to live in one geographical place, but he's giving the Spirit, and because he's giving the Spirit, his presence will be able to go all over the world. And we kind of read that, and we go, uh-huh, and it kind of glosses over. Am I wrong? Isn't that kind of how, how many times have you really taken seriously the promise and apply it that you will do the works that he does, not in the same sense, but following the same prototype, following the same pattern, his alone are unique and redemptive, but we still do similar works than he does. And get this promise, Jesus is not just using hyperbole here. He means what he says. Greater works than these will he do because he's going to the Father. That's the power of the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now let's put this together for a second. I want you to think of this promise in John. Keep this. Yes, I'm asking you to think deeply this morning. You need to multitask. Think of this promise in John 14 and look at Mark 13, 9 through 13. Because this section, this section of verses, hangs together by one word. The word deliver. And it's used three times in verses 9 through 13. So verse 9, and again, notice Jesus' purpose. He gives an exhortation, but be on your guard. So in other words, he doesn't want you putting on your apocalyptic, fervent glasses saying, oh, Da Vinci Code. No, he, he is exhorting to action. Be on your guard is a command. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And then again in verse 11, And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And then verses 12 and 13, And brother will deliver brother over to death. There will be division in the family, children against parents, brother over to brother. Now what has Mark three times Jesus is preparing his disciples, you will be delivered over. What has Mark recorded Jesus predicting three times before? In Mark chapter 8, in Mark chapter 9, and in Mark chapter 10, Mark records for us that Jesus predicted that he would be delivered, notice the same word, over to the chief priests, teachers of the law, and be mocked, spat upon, rejected, and killed, only to rise again in three days. Now in John 14, Jesus promised, we will also do the works that Jesus does. Now remember I said, not in the same sense. Not for the same purpose. Jesus did it redemptively. But what did Jesus come to do? Suffer and die and rise again to new life. We will also do the works that he did. His life, see, think about this. What does the cruciform life mean? It means that his life becomes the prototype for ours, that our experience and pattern is modeled after and conformed to his experience and pattern. We will also do the works that Jesus did. That means our lives will be delivered over for the good of others. We will suffer abuse and rejection in order to bear witness to Jesus. Because if you look at this, right smack dab in the middle of this section is verse 10. That says, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. 
Did you catch that? It didn't say, and the gospel, and I laid this down as an option. The word is, and the gospel must first be proclaimed in all nations. See, again, ask the right question of the text. What does this show me about Jesus that therefore I am to conform my life to? What does this show me about Jesus that then is a prototype and a model and a pattern for my life? Jesus accomplished the gospel, has poured out his spirit upon us, that then he would then entrust to us. And I had to mark this in the side of my Bible because this absolutely amazes us, that he trusts us with the message of the gospel and doesn't have a plan B. Friends, that ought to blow us away. I don't know about you all. If I were God, I'd have a plan B and maybe C, D, E, and F. But he has a plan A. The gospel must first be preached and proclaimed to all the nations. That's why after he dies and rises again, when he gets together with his disciples, he gives them the commission. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. And that word go means as you go, as you live your ordinary life, as you are living with your family, working at your workplace, living amongst your neighborhoods, your ordinary life where you live, go and make disciples of all nations. And in Acts chapter 1, when the resurrected Jesus is giving the 40-day kingdom seminar to his disciples, and they're still asking questions about when will the kingdom be restored to Israel. They still quite don't get it. Jesus gives them the promise and the commission, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Do you hear the promise? Greater works you will do because Jesus will go to the Father after dying for your sins and rising from the dead, giving new life and pouring out his Spirit, and those greater works... Gospel proclamation and gospel ministry to the nations. Why does the church exist? The church exists. Why hasn't Jesus returned yet? Because the gospel has not yet been proclaimed to all the nations and all the people that God has has not yet called into his fold. If it were finished, Jesus would return and there'd be no more suffering, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, no more death. It's why I so appreciate Andrew starting this with our pastoral prayer, and I'm going to plan on continuing it. We pray each week for unreached people groups because part of our mission is that the gospel would be proclaimed to all the nations. So last week we prayed for the Nara people, and in a few minutes I'm going to pray for the Jabala people of Morocco. Over a million people who have yet to hear the gospel. Do you see where it says the gospel must? This is an imperative, a missional imperative. The gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. As one writer put it, in terms of all of our theological study, he says, if mission, listen to this, if mission were truly the mother of our theology, if our theological disciplines And he's not canceling out theology, but he's saying if our theological disciplines were intentionally conceived and developed as complements of the formation of the church for its biblical vocation, 
to proclaim the gospel. So if theology served that purpose of equipping us, helping us to know God, to form us for a vocation of proclaiming the gospel to the nations, he says we would never need to use the term missional. He writes, mission has its source in the love of the Father who sent his Son to reconcile all things to himself. The Son sent the Spirit to gather his church together and empower it to participate in mission. The church is sent by Jesus to continue his mission, and this sending defines its very nature. Jesus is Lord of all, not Caesar, not anything else in our day and age. Jesus is the great king above all gods. Jesus alone is Lord of all and king of kings. And this gospel, the gospel which is the good news that he came to die for us, to give us new life, to make us alive again, must first be proclaimed to all the nations. And he trusts us. He trusts us with this message. How amazing is that? Father, we do pray that we would hear your word and that we would ask ourselves, how can we be a church? How can we be a people that is about proclaiming the gospel? Where we live, right here in Volusia County, Port Orange, New Smyrna Beach, Daytona Beach, Ormond Beach. We ask, Father, that we would be about that business of gospel proclamation and do so recognizing that this is not a pressure or some sort of work. You've told us it is your grace that's training us to say no to ungodliness. It's your grace that's purifying for you, a people, for yourself zealous to do good works, that you will give us the words to say. Help us to understand that this defines our very existence, that this defines our nature. We pray, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.